Well, thank you so much, worship team. We appreciate all your hard work in leading us this morning in worship. And most of you probably recognize that last um, song as a, a modern rendition of that classic hymn, uh, really an Advent hymn uh, written by the famous hymn writer Charles Wesley. And uh, depending on your church background um, and maybe your family tradition, you may or may not be familiar with with the concept of Advent. Um, my only exposure to the concept of Advent growing up was getting an Advent calendar uh, every year at the beginning of December that we used to count down the days leading up uh, to Christmas. And I remember the calendars had these 24 little windows that we would open up one a day. And my favorite part was there was chocolate inside each one of those. And uh, as a little kid, that was fun. And um, my parents probably were intending for that calendar to teach my sister and, and me about the coming of Christ, but honestly, to this day, all I remember is the chocolate. So, um, sorry, Mom and Dad, you try, right? But um, according to, to Christian tradition, Advent is the season of the year leading up to Christmas. And it's really hard to pinpoint when you look back in church history when the tradition of Advent began, but for centuries, Christians have set aside the first four Sundays of December to prepare their hearts for Christmas. And uh, Roman Catholics and, and other liturgical groups like Lutherans and Methodists and Anglicans and Episcopalians uh, typically observe this season of Advent with various traditions and, and rituals and there's wreaths and there's candles and there's colors and there's, there's ceremonies and there's fasting and there's prayers and there's readings. And uh, most evangelical churches like ours typically don't celebrate Advent because we, we see too much association necessarily potentially with, with traditions and, and rituals that aren't mentioned in the scripture. And, um, and we know Christians aren't required to observe Advent. Uh, and those who do aren't better Christians or more acceptable to God. But having said all that, I, I think that celebrating Advent can serve as a helpful reminder of what this season is truly all about especially in our culture that has turned the days leading up to Christmas into a, a hectic rush of, of, of going to parties and shopping and wrapping presents and traveling, all of which tends to take our focus off of Christ. And so the concept of Advent, I think, is a good thing. In fact, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. And so as Christians, we often talk about Christ's first advent or his second advent, and we're referring to what? His first coming and his second coming. And advent is actually a time to anticipate both Christ's first coming and his second coming. But primarily, we look forward to celebrating the birth of our Savior, uh, sort of like we came in this morning all dressed up, uh, ready to celebrate and sing songs of joy, joy to the world, and Christ has come. And really, what we're doing is we're sharing in the ancient longing of every faithful Jew who eagerly awaited the coming of their, of their Messiah. And while there's no clear exhortation in the Bible commanding us to, to set aside the, the four weeks prior to Christmas as a season of waiting and hoping and, and yearning, there is a biblical example of someone who waited and hoped and yearned for the coming of Christ, and it's the story of Simeon. And it's found in Luke chapter 2, and 
I want you to turn in your Bibles there with me, Luke chapter 2, and as I was listening to the ladies uh, in our house anyway, practicing uh, that song and, and that knowing that that song was going to be the, uh, one of the specials this morning, I was thinking about all the passages that, that would relate best to that song, and uh, this was the passage that came to my mind. This is exi- really, I would think that Wesley probably drew of the lyrics from that great hymn, Come the Long Expected Jesus, from this particular text. Luke chapter 2, Uh, We'll begin reading in verse 21 and go through verse 35. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, this is Jesus, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then here's our story. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel." And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In my opinion, this is one of the most touching moments of the entire Christmas story, but it's often overlooked because it happened a month or so after Christ's birth. We typically stop reading in Luke chapter 2, verse 20, uh, when the shepherds went back glorifying and praising the Lord, and, and that's the end of the Christmas story, at least according to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, furthermore, the story of Simeon is typically overshadowed by the story of the angels. We all know the story of the angels coming, uh, you know, and announcing the birth of Christ, or the shepherds, the wise men who, who seem to take center stage in the nativity narratives. The innkeeper, who's not even mentioned in the gospel accounts, not to mention the cows and the donkeys and the sheep, they tend to get more attention than Simeon at Christmas time. But just because he played a, a, a bit part in the Christmas story, his role in the birth of Christ was just as significant as, as all these other characters who are more familiar to us. In fact, Simeon was the only person that the Bible mentions who had the privilege of actually holding the Christ child. I'm sure others did. That was pretty common. You go into the hospital to see a newborn and, you know, the first thing the mom says, you want to hold him? Want to hold her? And of course you say, yeah, sure, I'd love to Older, and I'm always nervous because, you know, I feel like I'm going to break them because they're so fragile and, 
you know, their head just flops around and stuff, so you got to hold that. And, but the point is, Luke is the only gospel writer who included Simeon's momentous interaction with baby Jesus. And so this is very important for us uh, to, to understand this, this text and what, why it's here in God's Word. I think the first thing we need to understand is that, that Luke wrote his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ for a Roman official named Theophilus. And you can see that back in Luke chapter 1, uh, he mentions that in verse 3, uh, this man, most excellent Theophilus, that he was writing to. And um, he wanted to, to remove any doubts that this man had about Jesus and help him become absolutely convinced of the truth of Christianity. And so he says that he wrote out this account in consecutive order so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So if Theophilus was a Christian already, Luke wanted to help him be convinced of what he believed. He wanted to strengthen his faith. If he wasn't a Christian, he wanted him to be convinced of what he needed to believe. He wanted to stimulate faith in him. Either way, when it came to relating the account of Christ's birth to Theophilus, Luke purpose to provide as much evidence as possible to prove that Jesus was just no ordinary child. And so in chapter 1, Luke described how an angel, Gabriel, visited a godly priest named Zacharias while he was performing his duties, his annual duties in the temple, and he promised him that his barren wife would give birth to a son who would serve as the forerunner of the Messiah. This was, of course, uh, the parents of John the Baptist. Uh, he went on to record in, in that same chapter how that same angel, Gabriel, visited a young Jewish virgin named Mary to announce that she would be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. And so you've got John's birth uh, announced, you've got Jesus' birth announced, and then the last half of Luke 1, he included uh, the, 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 the encounter between Elizabeth and Mary, the mothers of John and Jesus, along with the birth of John. And then in chapter 2, Luke recorded the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, how they came from Nazareth to uh, the, the city of, of, of David's birth, or excuse me, Joseph's birth, the city of, of Bethlehem to register and how Christ was born there. In verses 8 through 20, uh, we see how God's angelic um, announcement of his son's birth came to be with the angels uh, coming to the shepherds during the night watch on the, on the hills outside of Bethlehem. And now we come to Verse 21, Luke further revealed the greatness and the uniqueness of God's Son in the events surrounding the customary presentation of a newborn child in the temple. And so it's important for us to understand the background, the sequence of events leading up to the story of Simeon, because um, in the days and, and weeks following Christ's birth, Joseph and Mary had to obey uh, the commands that God gave to all Jewish parents. And if you were to look back in the Old Testament and in, in Leviticus and in, in Numbers and other places, you would see that according to the law of Israel, there were three ceremonies that every parent was required to perform after they had a baby. The first one was circumcision. We see that in verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, a name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so every Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day, and that's also when he was named. And uh, back then, names meant something. 
Uh, oftentimes, children were given a particular name to signify what God was up to at that time in the nation of Israel, or what he had planned for the future of Israel. And so in obedience to Gabriel's message, this young couple named their baby boy Jesus. And that name came from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And if you remember back in Matthew chapter 1, we read this um, uh, last week. In Matthew chapter, excuse me, two weeks ago, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Gabriel said this to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will what? Save his people from their sins. And then I love what it says in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. And so there was, first of all, they needed to circumcise Jesus. Secondly, they needed to go through a process of purification. Notice verse 22, and when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. After a woman gave birth to a boy, she was unclean for 40 days. And it was twice as long if it was a girl. Um, She could go about her daily responsibilities, but she was not allowed to enter the temple or share in the religious ceremonies. And so 33 days after her son was circumcised, that a mom, a new mom, was required to bring a lamb and a pigeon or a dove to the temple and offer them as sacrifices to the Lord. Again, you can look at this in Leviticus chapter 12. And it also says in Leviticus 12, if a person or a couple couldn't afford a lamb, they could bring a second dove or a pigeon instead. Notice what it says in verse 22, that when they came to present Jesus um, to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb, she, she shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The fact that there was no mention of a lamb here uh, is pretty obvious that Mary and Joseph couldn't afford to buy a lamb on a carpenter's salary, and so they brought the offering required of a, of a poor person. And so they circumcised Christ, they went through the proper purification uh, ritual, and then thirdly, and most importantly, they were redeeming, if you will, they brought Jesus to the temple to redeem him, to buy him back from the Lord, and that's what's implied here. It says, um, verse uh, 22, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written, in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And this was the law that the Lord laid down in the Old Testament ever since the day that God spared Israel's firstborn during the Passover as a reminder to them of how he had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. Every firstborn male, both man and beast, was considered sacred to God, set apart to God, holy unto God, and God required parents to to essentially purchase them or buy them back from him by paying a sum of money to the priests. And so at this point in Luke's narrative, Jesus was was just over a month old when his parents performed these ceremonies, these uh, that were required for Jewish newborns. And so they came to the temple to do these things, 
and, and they had this unexpected encounter with a complete stranger. And uh, just imagine, I guess, if you remember those days when you were at the hospital having your first child and, and, and um, uh, you know, uh, people came to visit you. Your parents were there, your in-laws were there, your friends came, I might have even showed up, right? But can you imagine a complete stranger, you know, knocking on the door and walking in? You're like, who's this? Just a complete stranger out of nowhere just walks in and picks up your baby and starts talking to you about him. That would be weird. But that's what was going on here in this interaction with, with Simeon. And, and we can divide this, this, this story into three parts. We're, we're going to see Simeon's watching uh, in verses 25 through 26, Simeon's worshiping, verses 27 through 32, and S- Simeon's warning in verses 33 through 35. Now, let's look first of all at Simeon's watching in verse 25. It says there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was a righteous, was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And so in this time of spiritual deadness and darkness in the nation of Israel, there was still a a God-fearing old man looking, yearning, longing for the consolation of Israel. That's another way of saying that he was waiting for the Messiah. And it says he was righteous and devout. In other words, he lived in a right relationship with God and others. He faithfully fulfilled his religious duties. He took God's promises seriously. And he was part of a, of a godly remnant of Jews in those days who were eagerly awaiting the promised Messiah. In fact, we meet another one right after this story. Her name is Anna, the prophetess, in, in verse 36. And she was married for seven years and then lived as a widow after her husband died to the age of 84, and she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Verse 38, it says, at the very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna was another one of these righteous, devout folks. Another one mentioned by Luke later on in this gospel is Joseph of Arimathea. If you remember Joseph of Arimathea, this was the man... Uh, One of the men that took Jesus off the cross uh, and then let him uh, be buried in his tomb. And in uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 50, it says a man named Joseph who was a member of the council. In other words, he was part of the Sanhedrin, uh, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. In other words, he did not agree with the, the plan to kill Jesus off. He was a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, here it is, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And so this was a righteous member of the Sanhedrin, one of the religious leaders uh, set apart from the rest of the hypocrites who were leading the the nation in those days. But notice back in in Luke chapter 2, he says here, very specifically, this man, this righteous devout man, was looking for the consolation of Israel. And uh, I'm sure you remember that was one of the lines of that song, that hymn, taken straight here out of Luke chapter 2, verse 25. And this is uh, an expression, uh, the consolation of Israel, it's an expression uh, referring to the hope of the Messiah, 
the messianic hope, a, 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 a consolation is a, is a person or thing providing comfort or relief or help. And that's exactly what the Jews anticipated regarding the coming Messiah, that he would comfort them. Uh, those of us, uh, those uh, who were disappointed, who were depressed, those who were in distress, he would relieve, he, he would help and support those experiencing misery and pain. This was the, the, the consolation of Israel. And they also were expecting a militant Messiah, somebody who would not just comfort them and console them, but would conquer on their behalf. And if you think about it, that, that's in many ways exactly what people are looking for today. The world is trying to find comfort. They're trying to find consolation, peace, relief in things like Drugs and alcohol and sex and money and entertainment and all these other things. But what we need to understand is that comfort and consolation can only be found where? In a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Simeon had waited his entire life patiently praying and, and anticipating the day when God would send the promised Messiah to comfort Israel and not just Israel, but the entire world. If you turn back to the Old Testament, uh, to the book of Isaiah, we see some prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 9, Isaiah says, And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited, that he might save us, this is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And then later in Isaiah 40, we see the actual word comfort used here. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, Isaiah says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so these were just some of the, the Old Testament promises that, that I'm sure uh, Simeon had learned as a, as a boy growing up in, in, in Israel and had meditated on and memorized over the years. But notice he also had the help of the Holy Spirit. He was looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And just like Isaiah and the other prophets in the Old Testament, Simeon was uniquely indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we know during the period when when the scriptures were still under formation, that the Spirit of God would oftentimes reveal His will to godly people through dreams and through visions and through direct revelations. Now, that's not something we should expect because we have the completed Bible now, and so we shouldn't expect the Holy Spirit to guide us through anything but the words of Scripture rather than looking for some extra-biblical revelations that the Spirit gave Simeon and others. But notice it says here, that it, that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, 
Somehow the Holy Spirit had told Simeon that before he died, he would be an eyewitness of the Messiah. I mean, can you imagine that? That would be like God telling one of us today that Jesus Christ was going to return before we died. Can you imagine that? That you knew that you were not going to die until you saw Jesus return. I mean, can you th- the, 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 the kind of expectancy and invincibility that your life would take on? Well, the fact of the matter is Jesus could come back before any of us die. And so we should live with the same kind of expectancy, the same kind of invincibility, and we need to be looking and longing for Christ's second coming, just like Simeon looked and longed for Christ's first coming. More on that later. But we see, first of all, Simeon's watching or waiting. But then let's look, secondly, at Simeon's worshiping. Verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for them the cust- for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. By the way, do you notice how Luke emphasizes the whole uh, concept of seeing. It says he was um, waiting, looking for, verse 25, he was looking with his eyes, looking for the consolation of Israel. Verse 26, the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Literally, that word presence there means sight, which you have prepared in the sight of all peoples. In other words, Simeon wasn't the only one who was able to see the Savior. All of us have the potential of seeing the Savior. Well, back to the text here. Simeon didn't just bump into Mary and Joseph in the temple. God's Spirit specifically prompted him to go there at the very moment that they were presenting their firstborn son to the Lord. And I just imagine that throughout his lifetime, Simeon probably had seen plenty of young couples presenting their sons to the Lord during his many visits to the temple, and and yet there was something different about this couple. And when he saw them holding Jesus in their arms, the, the Spirit apparently said in somehow to him, hey, that's him. He's the one who the prophets foretold. He's the Messiah. And again, the the idea here that this total stranger walks up to Mary and Joseph and just just takes the baby out of their arms and, and bursts forth in praise and thanksgiving. And this song here we see in verses 29 through 32 is, is, is the fourth and, and final song of praise surrounding the Christmas story that Luke recorded here in his gospel. We have Mary's song um, in, in chapter 1. We have Zacharias' song. Uh, we have the angel's song in, 
in, in chapter 2 here to the, um, to the shepherds, and then we have Simeon's song, and, and, and really this song is, is Simeon's swan song, if you will. We, we understand the swan song is our, the, the song that we sing, our last great act before we die, our swan song. And this was literally his swan song, and it was the original Advent hymn. And so as, as Simeon cradled the consolation of Israel in his arms, he was overwhelmed with joy and, and, and gratif- gratitude that the Savior of the world was finally here. And notice how he addresses God. He says, now, Lord, now, Lord. Simeon was acknowledging God as his sovereign master who had rightful ownership over him and his life and could dispose of him whenever and however he pleased. And so he says, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. So Simeon likened himself to a to a slave who was released from some long, hard task that he had been been assigned to him. Like like a vigilant watchman whose job was to stand at his post all night long until he saw the sun rise over the horizon. And now that he had seen the light of salvation with his own eyes, he could die in peace knowing that the Messiah had come. I love that expression, your bondservant. This was the same expression Mary used, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 38, and Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. These people, you you wonder why God chose them to be a part of this this unique or or unprecedented opportunity in in history to, to be a part of the birth of his son because they were humble, submissive servants of the Lord. He says, I can depart in peace. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation. As this faithful servant of God cradled Christ in his arms, he realized that he was staring at, looking at God's provision for the salvation of all those who would repent and believe. And notice that it wasn't just for the Jews. He says, which he prepared in the presence of all peoples. God didn't intend his son to be this glorious secret known only to the Jews. His desire was for every every tribe, every tongue, every nation to see and experience salvation from sin and death and hell. Again, we see that back in Isaiah. This was part of the, the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 52... Verse 7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And that's why he went on to say here, a light of revelation to the Gentiles 
Again, God didn't just send his son to provide salvation for the nation of Israel, but to deliver the nations of the world from spiritual darkness. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, in, in the context of, 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 of Isaiah prophesying about this virgin who was going to be born, or I should say this just child that was going to be born of a virgin, he said in Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. In fact, Zacharias quoted Isaiah in his song in Luke chapter 1. How about Isaiah 49, 6? God says this, it is, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Of course, this was a prophecy of Jesus, and he knew that. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Simeon makes reference to Christ's impact on the Gentiles, but then comes back to the fact that this child is the glory of your people, Israel. In other words, the coming of this child, the coming of Christ, was a glorious fulfillment of God's promises to restore the former glory of the nation of Israel. And sadly, when they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God postponed this restoration of his chosen people until his second coming, but it still will happen in the future. But it's going to take the Antichrist to wake up the Jews to recognize that Jesus was their Messiah. And they missed him. But then it says that they're going to embrace him. I think this is just a sobering reminder that even though God's gracious and merciful provision of salvation through Christ is extended to, to everyone, Christ is not eagerly and willingly embraced by everyone. And that's what Simeon went on to say in his warning. After he was done worshiping, he went into warning mode. Verse 33, notice, and his father and mother were amazed at the things which are being said about him. I mean, with each miraculous thing that happened, the minds of Joseph and Mary were open more and more to their baby's true identity. And back in chapter uh, 2, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 19, after the um, no, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 19, um, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. I mean, all the things that were happening, all the things she was seeing and hearing and experiencing, she was tucking these things away in her mind and, and just treasuring them and pondering them, mulling them over. But then she was, then she heard something that she had not heard yet. Notice, Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, and so he's very specific, he's very pointed in addressing Mary at this point, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Up to this point, in Luke's account of the birth of Christ, it's been nothing but positive. 
I mean, everyone had only good things to say about Jesus. The angels, um, Elizabeth, uh, uh, Zacharias, um, the angels, the shepherds, all good news. It's a day of rejoicing. And Simeon is the first and only character in the Christmas story to say anything negative about baby Jesus. And his prophetic warning really, really included three images. There was a stone, a sign, and a sword. A stone, a sign, and a sword. Notice he says here, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. So Simeon told Mary and Joseph that even though their special son had come to save all men from their sins, that not everyone would be saved. Some would be damned because of him. That's the essence of this falling, that some would arrogantly reject Christ as their Lord and Savior and pay the penalty for their sins by spending away from, spending eternity away from his presence in hell. In fact, the prophets foretold that the Messiah would be a stone that caused people to what? To stumble over, to trip and fall. That Christ would be a, a stumbling block. Paul mentioned that in, in, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. He says, we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But the Bible also says even though Christ would be rejected by many, he would be a stumbling stone. He would become the foundation stone of the church. If you turn over to 1 Peter, you see these two concepts coming together, this stumbling block and this chief cornerstone. Peter mentions both of these and brings them together in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. And he's just quoting the Old Testament here. He says, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also Appointed. And so Simeon was prophesying that some would reject Christ, would trip over Christ, would, uh, would, would uh, end up in hell as a result. But notice he says, not only was this child appointed for the fall, but also the rise of many in Israel. Some would humbly receive Christ as their Lord and Savior and have their sins forgiven and, and raised up with him to spend eternity in heaven. And again, we see that concept throughout the New Testament, this whole idea of us being raised up with Christ to walk in newness of life, that we were seated in the heavenlies with Christ. See, the point is this, how you relate to Christ determines your eternal destiny. Did you hear that? How you, how each of you, how each of us relates to Christ will determine where we spend eternity. And Christ is either and will be to you a stumbling stone to hell or a stepping stone to heaven. 
He's one or the other. He can't be anything else. So is Christ to you, to you, is Christ a stumbling stone or is he a stepping stone? And so we see this idea of a stone. But also it says he would be a sign to be opposed. In other words, from the moment that word got out about the Christ child, he would be opposed. We read about the initial opposition in Matthew chapter 2 with King Herod's murderous rampage, wanting to make sure he killed this newborn king. And Herod was just the first of many who, who opposed Jesus because he posed a threat to their power, their influence. And that's exactly why the religious leaders of Israel led his, their own people to crucify him. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he did, and so they killed him. Which I think is what Simeon was referring to in verse 35 when he says, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. Simeon was not predicting her death, Mary's death, but simply the suffering that she would endure regarding her son's death. I mean, ladies, you can appreciate this more than us guys, but to just imagine being the mother of the Messiah. Must have been extremely difficult for her to have, have Jesus, as he got older, push her away on a human level. We know he was a loving um, respectful son. In fact, when he was hanging on the cross, he made sure one of the last things he did was m make sure that his mom was taken care of by John. But as part of his ministry, he needed to distance himself from his mother. If you remember when he visited the temple when he was 12 years old and the family had started heading back to Galilee and they realized Jesus wasn't with anybody and they, they, they rushed back frantically to Jerusalem and they were looking all over the place for him and they finally found him. And of course, a mother's heart, if you ever lost your kid in the mall or in a store, right, or even in your neighborhood, I mean, your heart just, just sinks into your stomach, right? And, and, and you're not at rest until you find him. And so they finally found him and, and she basically said, Jesus, why, would, why did you do this to me? Typical mother's response, right? How could you do this to me? And he basically said, hey, mom, you knew where I should have, you should have known where I, I, I was. This is where I needed to be. And then at the wedding in Canaan, when the, the, the wine ran out, remember that? And um, Mary said, hey, uh, Jesus, the wine ran out. And Jesus is like, so? <laughs> What's that to us? And he didn't call her by her name. He didn't say mom. He said, woman. What does this have to do with us? And so there was a distancing of himself from Mary. And then, of course, maybe the saddest moment uh, in those early years was when Mary and Jesus' stepbrothers came to visit uh, Jesus during his ministry. And he, they, somebody said, hey, your mom and, and brothers are outside. And Jesus said, hey, my mom and brothers are those who follow and obey me. I mean, it kind of felt like she was getting blown off a little bit so he could continue to minister the word to the people. But as the opposition and persecution against her 
beloved son increased throughout his life and ministry, so her pain and sorrow increased as well, and her grief reached its climax as she stood weeping at the foot of the cross, watching her son suffer the agony of crucifixion. And Simeon likened it here to a Roman broadsword, feeling like a Roman broadsword was piercing her soul. And so Simeon's swan song here ended on a somber note by foreshadowing the death of Christ, implying here that this baby was born to die. That's not necessarily something you want to hear, you know, first month out, right? Somebody shows up and says, oh, by the way, this newborn that you just absolutely love and are cherishing and treasuring is going to die. And so for the first time, God revealed to Mary and Joseph that their their one-month-old son would die to live up to his name, that he would save his people from their sins by dying for them. And that's what happened on the cross. Jesus endured the punishment for our sin. God poured out his wrath against our sin on his son, Jesus. And notice how it ends here, and a sword will pierce even your own soul. Why? To the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In other words, the inward thoughts and and motives and attitudes of every person's hearts are exposed through the death of Christ. Those who killed Jesus had the wickedness of their hearts exposed. Those who refused Christ, they refused to repent of their sins. They, they, They failed to put their trust in Christ for their salvation. Their hearts, the wickedness of their hearts is exposed as well. See, how we respond to Christ's birth, his life, his death, reveals what is in our hearts. All of our hearts are being revealed this morning as we consider this account. And none of us should walk away remaining neutral. In fact, that's impossible. You you cannot remain neutral when it comes to Christ. Jesus said you're either for him or you're against him. One old commentary that I have on the Gospel of Luke is is just very um, devotional in, in its style. And I came across this one section. I want to just read it to you. This is what the commentator said, quote, Jesus is the inescapable one. Sooner or later, everyone must take up a position with regard to him and must choose for or against him. A man's attitude towards him reveals and defines the real quality of his character. It is not an outward doing good or a good life that counts before God and reveals the deepest inclination and character of a man. What really matters is his attitude towards Christ. On this and on this alone, the eternal weal or woe of everyone depends. He who in his pride of self-satisfaction despises Christ, thereby dooms himself to everlasting ruin. But he who humbles himself under his mighty arm is raised up by him 
to everlasting salvation. What a great statement. Jesus is the inescapable one. In other words, you can't ignore Jesus. And you can't just relegate what you're hearing this morning to just some sappy, sentimental Christmas story from the past. No, Jesus is alive today and he's coming back again. And if, you're, if you don't want to deal with them now, you're going to have to deal with them sometime. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, the, the Advent season is a time to focus on both Christ's first coming, but also his second coming. And guess what? The next time he comes, it's going to be a lot different. He will not come quietly and softly as a meek baby born in a manger to save the world. He will come with great power and authority as a mighty king in fire to judge the world. Paul describes this, the second coming of Christ in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, with these words. Interesting, he comes to give relief consolation, if you will, to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. For us as believers, I think the, the takeaway from this text is really simple. We need to live in anticipation of Christ's return. Yes, we're here celebrating the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, but we need to live in anticipation of Christ's return. Just like Simeon looked and longed for Christ's first coming, we should be looking and longing for Christ's second coming. And this is assumed that this is what we do as believers. This is how we live our lives as believers. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds like Simeon, doesn't it? How about Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, as he was uh, giving his swan song, if you will, saying that I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That sounds like Simeon, doesn't it? How about Titus? Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That sounds like Simeon, doesn't it? And then, of course, the Bible ends. Revelation chapter 22, 
verse 20. The Apostle John, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly, amen, come Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming again. And we need to be ready. And Christmas is just a reminder that God's not through with us. And his plan for the salvation of the world has not been completed yet. The question is, where do you fit? Where are you at in this plan of salvation? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing plan of salvation that you initiated through the first coming of your son, Jesus, and that you will complete at his second coming. And we are blessed and privileged uh, as those who live in between the first and second coming of Christ, and we have a Bible, this book that you wrote by your spirit so that we would know the truth of what to believe and how to live. Lord, I pray that we would not squander this great privilege. Lord, particularly those who are here today who have yet to commit their lives to follow and obey Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their master, that they would be like Simeon, that they would become a bondservant of Christ to live for him and him alone. Lord, that they would see their need of salvation, that they would feel like their heart is being revealed even now, the wickedness of their own heart, their rebellion against you, and how they desperately need your forgiveness for their sin. And that forgiveness only comes through Christ, that they would embrace him today. They would, as it were, take him in their arms and rejoice in their salvation, through Christ we pray, amen.